So today, uh, we are going to navigate through what could be a little bit of a hornet's nest as we talk about issues of government and politics and taxes, among other things. I spent a lot of time this week researching and reading and praying, um, not just this week, but it's, it's been a long time, um, just thinking over this passage, praying over this passage, and, and I think as Christians, we have to have right thinking in this area. And despite my uh, just desire to have unity in as much as we possibly can, I do think that, it is, that we have to have proper theology in the process. So again this week, I'm going to ask that you would remove your personal understanding, your, your personal filters of, the, of, of how you've come to know things, how you've come to believe things, that we would let the Word of God change us, that we would give permission to the Spirit just to, to move us out of maybe some poor personal beliefs and sinful attitudes, that we would let the Scripture read the way that it reads and let it speak the way that it speaks. Romans, thir- Romans 13 can be an intimidating text, not intimidating just in understanding or interpretation, but in, in applying it within the political and authoritative landscape in which we find ourselves today. I think when we all turn on our TVs and we read papers, uh, I think there is concern that grows in all of us. Uh, the polarization and the division that we see in this country seems almost unfixable, and, and God's sense of justice and morality doesn't need, necessarily seem to be valued as much anymore, and we can get scared because of that. But thankfully, we have a good God that has given us some really good understanding of how we are to live inside of an earthly government, and we need to hear it and read it and listen to it and apply it. Because our current culture, it sure seems like we have many Christians who want the government to to mandate biblical principles in its action without first mandating those same principles extensively through our own lives. And we need to be careful about that. We've got important work to do today. We've got important work to do today to break down, read this, and ask this general question. What does a God-honoring life look like under an earthly government? So let's think about that. We're going to pray, and we're going to jump right into Romans 13 today. Father, just coming before you today, I just want to be your servant. Lord, will you just speak your words through me? I pray for our hearts, Lord, that you would just, you would reach them how you want to reach them. You would bring truth into our lives, Lord, that you would begin to move things around where we fall short of where we need to be with you. You would convict us that we would seek repentance and forgiveness to you, Father, and understand that you have given us all the grace that we'll ever need to move from that lifestyle to a lifestyle in you. We love you, Lord, and we pray all of this in your awesome name. Amen. So Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. We'll read it together. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will, be, you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For, it, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoers, on wrongdoers. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. 
For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. And honor to whom honor is owed. Now, I don't know if many of you are reading that maybe for the first time or reading that again for the first time and forgot about it, but maybe you're like me when I first read that and you went, Giridiva. Like, whoa, it says that? I promise you this will get a little bit less intimidating as we break it down. So let's kind of begin to focus on what is Paul really trying to get out here? Why is he writing this and what is he wanting to produce within the audience that is reading it? And then we're going to bring in the last half of Romans 13 and talk about how God calls us to live inside a government that is both good and corrupt. So Romans, a little bit of history, written in 57 AD is where it was believed to be written. It would have been in the reign, the early reign of Nero Caesar. Now, Nero is not a good dude. Uh, He will go on later to persecute and kill Christians in droves. But this is early in his reign. He's not as bad as he would later get, which is some, I don't know, help in that, but there's some context that we see within historical um, data that this is, that the Roman government at this time is at least stable, but by no means would this have been an easy time for Christians by any means. It would not have been. So Paul is writing this, and he's seemingly trying to ask these Romans to not add additional reputations as troublemakers because no good is going to come from a group of alien citizens that can't seem to cooperate where they can with the authorities in charge. And because we serve a real king, the real king of the world, we should not get ourselves into unnecessary quarrels with lesser lords. And then if we read Romans 12, and we did last week, and we bring those principles here into Romans 13, Paul seems to be imploring us not to repay evil for evil. That means the believers in Rome should not stoop to the level of the empire and pay back violence for violence, because no one's going to win in that case. Certainly Christians won't win, and more so the gospel does not win. So as a matter of principle, Paul says that every person should be subject to the governing authorities. And listen, the Greek word here for every does not translate into everyone but me. It means all souls. All of us are to submit and to obey to those who are in authority over us. And not just in government, but in all positions of authority. Although we're going to talk very heavily on a civil authority this week This same verse applies to our bosses and our supervisors wherever we're at. And why is that? Because those authorities have been instituted by God himself for the benefit of his people. And his people and those who are in authority are to remember that that authority exists only by God himself. Now, there may be people in your room that say, do you know my boss, dude? I don't. I don't know your boss. You think that God put him in the place of authority? How about that political person? God put him in that position, and maybe that just stirs up a little anger in us, and that's okay, but let's work through this. Let's flesh this verse out and try to seek some real understanding. So civil government was set up, instituted by God, it says, to help his people. We are broken and prone to sin. Government is there to help us have some boundaries where good would be rewarded and praised and bad would be punished and condemned at the hands of man. The passages 
here use language to describe God's authority as God's servant for your good, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoers. And because this institution is there to bring boundaries and accountability into those who are subject to that government, they are to pay taxes to those who taxes are due. And so we do that so the authorities might be able to continue in their service. Now, I'm not sure how far you got into this text or this understanding before you started to roll your eyes and ask some really serious questions. For me, it was around verse 1, all right? My personal issues with reading this and applying it come from my, my mistrust and unbelief in the things that are being said here based upon my personal experience and my knowledge of history. So I thought it would be good for us to hear some of the things, some of the issues that arose within me that I, as I read this, and then how some clarity was brought into some of those concerns. Because I think I'm not the only one who, when you read this verse and these passages, um, feel both scared and confused at the same time. I think as a principle, we as believers, we all kind of believe that it is a good idea to put ourselves in areas where we can have boundaries and structure and accountability. I think that we think that that is a good thing. Submission is a very much a Christian thing. Like last week, our entire message was about sacrificing ourselves, that we would lay our life down as a living sacrifice to the Father, a submissive act. Marriage is a submissive act. We're called to submit. It is a foundational Christian element. Now, that seems easier in the area of God, who is holy and good. He's the one that we trust. We live for him. We know he wants good for us. But when it is said that we should submit to earthly governing authorities who have been instituted by God, like, just, like, I do a double take. Like, what? You kidding? Like, that? So what this text seems to be saying and is saying is that all governing authorities have been instituted by God. And then he goes on to say that if we resist the authorities, we all are resisting God and will incur judgment. Not only that, but it says that the rulers are not terrors to those who do good. So all government is instituted by God? Like, how can that be? And if we go against it, we're going to incur judgment? That, that can't be right. Like, we know from our own eyes on earth that we have seen injustices committed by a government to upright people. Surely, surely Paul's off his rocker here when he's talking about this. Well, we'll see. We'll see if he is. So here, I just want to bring some clarity. I want to bring some thought into this. Paul, in this passage, in Romans 13, is referring to the ideal function of a government that is instituted by God and in a good government with godly authority who keep their focus on the giver of that authority, on God, all the things that Paul has written about here in Romans are true. They're correct. But much like every other institute that God has set up on earth here, there are three of them, marriage and family, the church, and government, the issue isn't with the one who instituted it. It's with the ones that carry it out. God laid it out perfectly for our benefit. We have imperfectly applied it as broken people. And so because of our sin nature, sin will cause corruption in almost everything on earth. And government is no exception. And a lot of silent amens. I can, I can feel it. So are we to obey even a corrupt government? Are we to obey even a corrupt government? The short answer is no. We are to obey government, 
unless that government violates scripture. There's an example of this in Acts 5. Peter is in front of the Sanhedrin, and he is approached by the Sanhedrin, brought there because despite strict orders not to teach and preach of the name of Jesus Christ, Peter continues to do this. And they're asking him why he continues to do it. In Acts 5, verse 29, this is Peter's response. We must obey God rather than man. Whenever a government violates biblical teaching and principle, we are obligated to obey God. For example, in Exodus 20, we are given the, the, the Ten Commandments. And uh, let me go back. So if a, government, if a government would come to you and say that we should kill all Asians, immigrants, people with Down syndromes, we are to obey that because that is in direct contradiction with the Word of God. Governments are run by people and often and most often become corrupt. Furthermore, the Bible never tells us, never tells us to obey governments that contradict the Word of God. And the principle is exemplified here in Exodus 20, where we're given the Ten Commandments. Two of those commandments are to obey your parents. So kids, listen, obey your parents. And the second one is do not murder. But what should we do if our parents come to us and say, hey, go murder that guy? Should we obey them? Of course not. Obedience to our parents is only proper when it is consistent with the rest of Scripture. And likewise, submission to a civil authority is proper outside of issues that violate Scripture. Let's look back at Romans 13 in verses 6 and 7 when it says this, For because of this you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Now this word minister in the Greek can be translated into the word servants. That these rulers are servants of God. And if these rulers are no longer serving God, and if they are contradicting scripture, then we are not to obey them. So how are we to live as Christians in a corrupt government? I think this is a question that many of us in this room would like to know the answer to. I don't think that I need to go out on much of a limb here or make too much of a bold statement and said that most of us in this room would say that our government, the one that we currently sit under, sit under is corrupt in some ways. Now, to what degree you might believe in its corruption varies quite a bit. But regardless of where you think it is, I want to remind us that our disobedience only happens in the direct contradiction to God's word and his principle. So what makes our government corrupt? I probably could have day-long conversations with some of you in this room about what makes it corrupt. I'm not going to, I don't, it's not a response time, okay? We have many answers here, but do this. Let's do this, okay? Let's make sure any area of disobedience comes straight from areas of scriptural contradiction and not when it affects your comfort and your happiness or comes in conflict with your personal opinions. Don't let your disobedience be in those areas. Keep it biblical. God never promised us an easy life. He never promised us happiness. He gave himself to us. That is all that we will ever need in this life. And so to answer the question of how do we live as a Christian inside corrupt government, to accurately answer that, we need to look at Romans 13, starting in verse 8. It says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. 
For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So as a Christian, we are to submit to governing authorities when and where we can, in all the areas that we can. But when it comes into direct violation against God's word, we are to obey God. But how we disobey matters. Like how we disobey matters. And I, this is just a desire. I'm just pleading this from my heart. How we disobey matters. There are still marks of true gospel-centered living that exist. And this group of scriptures that we see here in 13 summarizes some of what we've learned in last chapter in 12, that all the commandments can be boiled down to one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And when I say your neighbor, I'm not literally talking to Jim, your next door neighbor. I'm talking about everyone that you will come in contact with for the rest of your life. Our disobedience should not violate this principle nor should it ever contradict it. And we do see scriptural evidence of civil disobedience. So I think it would be wise for us to look at scripture and see how civil disobedience happened and find some clarity in it. The first instance that I want to talk about is out of Exodus 1. The Egyptian pharaoh has given a clear command to the Hebrew midwives that they should kill off every male Jewish baby. Yet the Bible says that those midwives disobeyed the Pharaoh and feared God and did not submit to the rule of the king like he commended them to. But the boys lived. And when the Pharaoh came to ask him why they were letting them live, these midwives lied to them and disobeyed the government. And God was good to the midwives. Now, whether sinning is still a lie, it's still a lie, but God or it's lying is still a sin, but God was still good to the midwives. And his people multiplied, and they became a very mighty people. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. The second we find is in 1 King, 1 Kings chapter 18, when we meet a man named Obadiah. And Obadiah is a man that says, it says, feared the Lord greatly. And when Queen Jezebel was going around killing God's prophet, Obadiah gathered a hundred prophets and hid them from her so, so she couldn't kill them. Such an act was in direct defiance to the government in charge at that time. Direct defiance to their wishes. Daniel records numerous instances of civil disobedience in his book. The first is in chapter 3, when we see three men that we're probably familiar with, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down to the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has declared that they need to worship. And then we see Daniel in chapter 6, not giving in to the decree from King Darius that he should not pray to anyone but beside, besides the king. In all of these instances, these men were sentenced to death by their governments, and God rescued them from those death penalties, signifying that he approved their action. So from these acts of disobedience, I think that we can find some things in these to understand how we are to act in civil disobedience. If we are just in disobedience, meaning the government has clearly, clearly contradicted the word of God and its commands and its principles, then this is how we should handle ourselves. 
So here's the question. How do we live inside a government that is corrupt? The first principle of disobedience looks like this. Christians should resist a government that commends or compels evil and should work non-violently within the laws of the land to change a government that permits evil. The second principle we see in these stories is that if a Christian disobeys an evil government, unless he can flee from that government, he should accept that government's punishment for his actions. And we see this all the time in the New Testament. How many times did the disciples go in and out of jail? How many of the disciples were martyred for their beliefs? But did the gospel stop? No, it spread within that. Three, Christians are permitted, certainly, to work to install new government leaders within the laws that they have been established. And, and that's kind of it. There's not a whole lot more to it. When we look at the New Testament, and more importantly, we look at Jesus, we see men that stood up with integrity for what was right in the eyes of God and still acted in a way that was both just and loving. They did not repay evil for evil. They did not seek to have vengeance on those who harmed them. And they did not use hate speech to condemn others and to incite revolt. And let's just look at one example within Scripture. Let's look at Jesus specifically. In Luke, there's a moment where the, the disciples are angry at the arrest of Jesus. And Peter takes out his sword and cuts off the ear of one of the high priest's servants. And Jesus turns to him and condemns him and then does something pretty incredible. Let's read it together here in Luke 22, verses 49 through 51. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And the one of them, and one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. I think that if we were Peter in this situation, we all would want to react in this way. But man, Jesus has just changed everything. He just changes everything. And there may be some of you in this room that say, Well, what about the Old Testament? What about the violence and the war that we see in there? What about eye for an eye? God raised up strong military warriors then. Won't he raise them up now? Friends, it's different. Like, and that's not picking and choosing what parts of the Bible we like and we don't like. That's reading the Bible the way Christians have always read Bible, the Bible, as two testaments. Like Jesus in his life, in his teaching, in his death, in his resurrection has changed so many things. Things like food laws, things like circumcision and war and violence. So hear me, how we disobey matters. We bring the gospel no benefit by letting ourselves react to the world by its own devices and its own standards. Brothers and sisters, can we remember the principles that Paul brought to us last week in Romans 12? These were the things that we talked about. These were the marks that Paul wrote about as God-honoring, Christ-centered principles. There they are. We have to remember these things. We bring no glory to God, no honor to God by reducing ourselves to the tactics and the hostility of this world. Romans 13 ends this way. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than we first believed. That 
the night is far gone, and the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. And look, I know that it is easy to get caught up in the moments in this world. It is easy to get lost in all of this chaos. But make no mistake, Jesus is coming back. The one who has given all authority will be returning. Do not allow the problems of this world to allow you to walk in darkness. Do not let fear cause you to submit to foolishness. Let us walk properly and not get caught up in this mess. Let us put Christ first and not give in to sin. So if I could bring some summation and summary to the concepts of government, authority, and duty to God, I would say this. We have to understand, despite maybe our reservations, that government is a God-ordained institution. And despite its flaws and being carried out imperfectly, we should submit and obey to it when and where we can. And honestly, guys, we should be an easy group of people to govern, not because we're weak, but because of Christ. We should pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, not based upon whether they deserve it or not, or our opinions, but because of how Christ called us to live on this earth. We should be great citizens in this world. We should be pillars of our community, people who stand up for right things, who, who love people despite their mistakes, who, who are able to seek and to show hospitality, who care for the poor and disenfranchised. We should be pillars. But in those moments where our government and our God come in direct conflict with principles, we are to stand with integrity and follow the Lord in those areas. And we do not violate Jesus' teaching as of Christian living in the process. We don't turn our backs on the Sermon on the Mount. If you haven't read that, read that. We don't turn our backs on the things that Paul teaches us here in Romans. For as much as it is sometimes the burden of living in this world, we also need to remember that this current world is not our home. Let us do the things that Jesus in Scripture tells us to do in the way that he says to do them. Because does our reward come from some tax break or better paying job? Does it come from social security or a political victory? Or does it come from our Father? Through a deeply satisfying life and integrity on earth and the life that is to come after this. We need to consider these things. Who is the authority of all authority? It is our God. Our God. And he is supreme. And he is not bound by government. No government will squash him. No government will rule him. He has existed from the beginning of time. He will not be bound to government. He has been here since America was started. And he will be here, honestly, after America we who believe must honestly ask ourselves this question with integrity in our hearts. Shall we be Americans with a pinch of religious flavoring or shall we be Christ people with a pinch of American flavoring? You know, for a good chunk of this week, I was fearful of how you might respond to a message that didn't lean towards one political party that wasn't pro whatever candidate you believed in or wasn't even really pro-American. I was fearful 
of the same vitriol and hate speech that I hear present in our conversations and I see present on our social media pages being directed at me. But somewhere on Thursday, I remembered that I'm more concerned about my standing in the eyes of God than I am in the eyes of man. And from my time in God's word and my understanding of Christ's teaching, I think it's time that we wake up and not wake up to some great government rebellion, but that we would turn back to God ourselves first. Because it seems like our value to this culture is increasingly that of just a voting block and not that of a vehicle that God is using on earth to bring and restore his love, his grace, his truth, and his message of reconciliation to the broken lives and the broken people that surround us on a daily basis. We are seen as a viewpoint and not a lifestyle. Would it be great if government would adhere to the principles that God has put in place in this world? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we should stand for those things. But our government is not our moral compass. It is not our vehicle for moral virtue. You are the vehicle for moral virtue and God-given compassion and love to this world. Christ lives in us. He's changed me. He's changed you. We are those vehicles. We are to be the kind of change that we want to see in our society in person. So does God call us to submit and serve government? Yes. But we are to serve and to submit to that government as citizens of heaven first and citizens of an earthly kingdom second. In the Bible, there are things that it talks about that are permissible but not beneficial. And there are a number of these things that we could talk about that are permissible but not necessarily beneficial. I certainly think we can probably throw alcohol into this camp, that some people can handle it, some people absolutely should not touch it because they cannot. Then we, you know, technology is another one. Some people can handle technology, some people can't. And I really believe that government and politics is one of these things. If you find yourself not being able to edify the Father through your actions in a political sphere, you should exclude yourself from that sphere. If your Christian witness is being disqualified because of the hate in your heart and the hate in your speech and your inability to love your neighbor as yourself, you should remove it from your life. And listen, it is okay. Like, I can't handle an iPhone. I can't handle the technology. There's no shame in it. So let's wrap this up. We submit to a government where we can and we change it where we're permitted to, but we do not hold the belief that civil authority should carry out biblical principles for us. Our government is not our God. To vote for policy and principle and candidates that you think are biblical is fantastic and great, but if you just vote and do not adhere to Christ's principles as the foremost center principle of your life, then we are lukewarm at best and apathetic. Because at the end of this life, you and I will be judged on a very few things. The way that we love, our obedience to God's word, the way that we raised our, fam our families, and for me, how I led his people. What we won't be judged on are the actions of a good or corrupt government, but only in the responsibilities that God has given us. And so to end today's message, I just want to read to you uh, some, some words that Jesus spoke near the end of his life that bring me great comfort. He, he's speaking about the eventual departure from earth, and these words bring me both hope and guidance 
and issues on this earth. So let's read them together. John 14, verse 23 through 27. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and he will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the words that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave you. May my, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Let us ask forgiveness where we need to ask forgiveness. And let us turn to God with our whole lives. Let's pray. Father, I just humbly come before you today and I ask that you would help us to have right thought in this area. That we would surrender our life to your authority in your way first. That we would submit where we can submit. But God, that we would act justly and with integrity and love in areas where we have to obey you rather than man. God, give, give us insight this week. Move us to a place of conviction of where we're falling short and build us up, Father, by the grace that you given, have given us, all the grace that we'll ever need to move from a life of sin into your promised life of hope. We love you, Father, and we pray all of this in your son's name. Amen.